In the next few moments, we're going to look at Scripture together. I want to ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. As you're turning there, a couple of things. I just want to make sure and say hello. If we hadn't got a chance to meet, my name is Lance, and like Zach, I serve as one of the pastors here. It's a delight for me uh, each and every week to get to consider the Bible with you. At least most of the time, that's my job when I'm around here. And so I've been praying, and I hope that I could be of benefit to you today as we consider the fruit of the Spirit. Brian introduced last week this theme from Galatians 5, and I thought I'd go ahead and just continue, and I would read this portion of Galatians chapter 5, and then what we're going to do is we're going to pause, and we're going to stop, and we're going to consider love, love as concept, love as theme, and then like just the idea of love as a practice in our life, what does that look like? So we have a big task ahead of us because love is a big topic, And I wonder if you wouldn't follow along with me. I'm going to start reading in the 16th verse of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 16. I'm going to read down through verse 26. Then I want to pause and pray and consider with you. Galatians says this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We pause there as we did last week. This section, at least for these number of weeks, we wanted to read through it a few times to mark what we hope is the spirit, it's not a a pun, but the spirit of the fruit of the spirit this summer. As we consider what kind of people we're becoming, we make bold and glorious claims. Claims like this, the spirit of Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, indwells us. He is slowly making us into his image. We name ourselves after him. We are Christians, little Christs. And if this is the case, and because we make these glorious claims, we ought to consider what evidence there is to convict us of these claims. Do we have a claim? Is there something that points to this Spirit, Spirit of God Himself? Is there something that points to Him living in our midst? I read a book one time that said that if you showed up one day at your public basketball game, pick up the YMCA, maybe if you don't play basketball, I could just describe this scene for you. It is largely composed of people there for a jovial, violent, awkward, sweaty game of hoops. Many of them are not skilled. Some of them played high school basketball. If anyone did, in fact, play college basketball and show up at those things, they are hated by all because they're too good. But it's not like basketball is on display at a high level in these situations. And if you showed up at your local game and you said, something happened to me, 
I have met the spirit of basketball. He now indwells me. I am simultaneously becoming more and more like Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain. Michael Jordan lives in me. LeBron James is my spirit essence now. And week by week, what you will observe in me is a growth in these aptitudes. It would be disconcerting then for you, you'd immediately be, of course, the laughingstock, but it would be disconcerting week after week after week if you continued to be terrible. If you continued to show that you had no skill and could not dribble and could not score. Maybe in another sermon sometime I would use more apt basketball terms for those things, but I didn't want to leave anyone behind by talking about your handle or something like that. The point is this. We've made bold claims. We make these claims on good promises. The Spirit of God does, in fact, indwell us. The question becomes, well, what does that mean? Who are we becoming? And here in Galatians 5, amidst other places, we are told what we should anticipate to receive from the Spirit. Because the Spirit indwells us, this is what we should anticipate receiving from Him. There should be a growing evidence that this fruit is coming forth from us. Now, a few baseline things going in. Brian did a wonderful job last week on these. These are fruits. We should take that word into consideration. They take time to grow. They are cyclical sometimes. Ultimately, they are a gift from God. There are certain kinds of efforts that we undertake, certain kinds of positions we put ourselves in, but none of us can mandate nor snap our fingers and have fruit come. More than that, the fruit is singular of the Spirit. It's a reminder to you that these things grow together over time. We're not let off the hook by any one of these lists. It's not a personality test. This isn't nine potential options for your Christian life. Oh, are you a patient person? Well, not me. I got... You know, my score was self-control or something like that. And that's why I'm so not patient with other people who are not self-controlled. This is not a personality test. These fruits grow together in unison over time. That being said, we are going to spend a week at a time through the next couple of months considering what does Scripture say about these fruits? What are we looking for when these words are being used? And so this morning I want to consider that first word, the leading word. Maybe if I had to give a title for this, I would say love leading is the title of this for good reason. There's evidence that love is not randomly by chance put at the start of this lead. Love takes first place in Scripture so often. Love is a leading characteristic, a leading attribute, and in fact, it is a leading fruit of the Spirit. We're going to consider love this morning. What does that look like? Are you a loving person? How do we define if we know that we've loved well or are being loved? What does this look like according to the Bible? I want to take a moment and pray for us. I want to pray that God helps us, that His Spirit gives us eyes to see, that where we may have blind spots, where perhaps we have let love slide and been unloving, that we would be convicted, where we need to receive the love of God and be encouraged in what we have been progressing in, that maybe we would be comforted, but overall that we would be humbled and realize we need God's help with this. So let's, let's pray. God, thank you for revealing yourself as Father. That's a loving term. 
We thank you for the way that that's demonstrated in the world. Even on this Father's Day, we thank you for the love of fathers, their backbone, their strength, their consistency, their work. And I ask God that as we consider this fruit of the Spirit in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, I pray that you would help us to be sober-minded. We want to be, we long to be loving, people who are marked by love. The potential, when and because we can be loving people, the potential for impact on the world is great, especially for your glory, and so we pray that you'd make us loving. God, we know the danger as well. You have harsh warnings for those who reject love, who don't walk in love. So please, God, open our eyes. Help us to see where we have lacked and failed. And I pray ultimately that in humility we would be grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. You dwell here with us. May we lean in and listen Dig ears for us, Spirit of God. Give us a sense and a a desire, a longing. God, would you, as our Father, give good gifts to your children now? We're crying for the Spirit. Please, Spirit, come in power. We ask for that now as we study. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say, we could discuss this later, but I think it is fair to say that there is no concept, no word, no idea, no emotion, no sentiment that has spilled more ink or time or been vocalized more than love in the history of the planet. I mean, I tried to think through other options, but I just don't think they stand a chance. Every single one of us, at the snap of a finger, could likely come up with a myriad of songs expressing love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. We know these things by rote. We have been captivated by love stories. We sense sometimes and are surprised even sometimes by love that bubbles out of our being for things that we maybe did not know we had a devotion to. Love dominates life. I would also say that one of the reasons that love is so spoken of is because all of us innately understand the power of love. There is evidence everywhere, not only of us being loved well, but there is evidence everywhere of people experiencing the terrible lack of love and all that comes with it. In this instance, The emphasis on love in the world, I think, is evidence that the world has something right. They understand the leading nature of this defining factor of who we are. And what I want to do is to consider what is it that has the world standing at attention, that has it longing, that has it pleading, that has it singing. Why do we fall in love with stories like Pride and Prejudice or Romeo and Juliet What is it about the devotion of our hearts, the connection to other beings and things that is so dominates our consciousness? And what I want to do is consider Scripture 
And as best I can, this is going to attempt to be holistic, but it's impossible in one morning to say it. What does the Bible say about love? It's impossible, but I want us to get a little ways down that road. And we're going to do so in this order. Before we try to define love from the Bible, I want to describe it first. And so we're going to describe love, and then we're going to dare, we're going to just go out on a, on a limb, and we're going to try to offer a definition of love after we've read a description of love from Scripture, and then we're going to demonstrate. We're going to see how love is demonstrated both by God and us and in the world. So it's going to be those three words. They start with D. The first is we're going to try to describe love from Scripture. Second, we're going to define it. We're going to offer a definition. And then finally, we're going to consider how it's demonstrated. So we got a lot to get to. Love's the theme. And here we go. The first thing to look at and consider, if I said to you, well, where is love described in the Bible? Most of you know. Most of you would probably be able to say from the beginning, well, where am I going to go? We're going to talk about love. People who have no idea about the Bible and have long ago abandoned their faith still probably recall, or maybe never were introduced to faith, still recall and realize that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the love chapter of the Bible. It shows up at every single wedding. It has been used and misused and abused in a million different ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is smack between chapter 12 and 14, because that's how numbers work. But 1 Corinthians 13 is written there as a description, as a call by the Apostle Paul to a church that has been in chaos, and what he says needs to be reinstalled in them is a sense of what love is. How should they interact with one another, and how should they be governed in life? And so what I want to do is, beginning in verse 4, I want to read the description of love that is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. This, of course, applies to romantic love. There's good reason this is read at weddings. But it is first and foremost written as a description of the way that Christians should treat one another. The way that human beings, neighbors, people in line together at the grocery store, people in families, that the way that anyone should treat another image bearer is love. And that is this description, so I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There would be enough here for us to spend hours and hours and hours, but we're going to let it lead at least as a description of what love is. It tells us this in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. We're going to pause there. This description of love patient, kind, not envying or boastful, not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way. In other words, doesn't budge to the front of the line. It is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth. And then this description of love, love is really, really difficult to kill. What kind of thing bears up under all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things? What kind of honey badger of emotion is this that never ends? Love is sturdy, 
It is strong. It is patient. It is kind. Love described in the Bible feels like, and I would say that once tapped into and actually practiced, love is a kind of superpower. Love is that quality of human emotion and action in the world that allows us to endure and to press forward to good things despite all circumstances, including circumstances of our own maladies and own difficulties. Now, a couple of things just to comment on as we read this description of love. Love is not mere sentiment, though it includes sentiment. There's a hopefulness to love. There is a kindness to love. These are fuzzy, soft, wide-eyed, bright kind of descriptions. Love is patient. There's a gentleness installed in love. Love is patient. It's not demanding and in a hurry and desperate. But love also has a backbone. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love anchors itself to right things. More than that, love considers others. Love looks out. These are the descriptions, the kind of things that describe what a loving person is and what a person who desires to be loving must be like. As we describe this, I suppose that it's worthwhile to ask the most obvious question then, how often does this describe us? In which relationships? In what circumstances? When you read this list, one of the things that's often good to do for a sober-minded, humble person who believes that God desires them to change, you might say to yourself, which parts of this sting? What am I bad at? There are some, perhaps, who read this and say, I'm really good at being patient and kind, but I'm not very good at recoiling from wrongdoing. I'm not very good at sustaining. I walk away when things get difficult because I just can't stand conflict. I'm a loving person. And so maybe you read this and you say to yourself, maybe I could work on the backbone part. There are other people I know who have taken a truthful statement of Scripture to say that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. They say, I want to speak the truth in love. And they say, well, here's the kind of love I'm good at, tough love. And if you need a little tough love, you just come to me. But perhaps they would, in a moment of honesty, say, but here's the thing. Sometimes when I'm tough loving all the time, I find myself getting more irritable and keeping a record of wrongs. And sometimes I'm tough loving people to the point of impatience because it's hard work, tough loving. And I don't know why people can't change. And it's these descriptions that start to bound the character, the urging of the Spirit of God in us to know whether or not we're loving. And it's this description from 1 Corinthians 13, it's not the only place, but it was the best and the most succinct that would lead us to perhaps dare to offer a definition. I'm going to offer a definition of love. If you had to say in the abstract, then what is love? This is what it's described like, what is love? This would be the definition that I might dare to bring if I dared. So here I go. I'm going to dare. Love is 
whole person devotion to the highest good, first in God, for God, then for others, then for self. Love is whole person devotion to the highest good, first for God, then for others, then for self. Now, here's why I define it in this way. It is whole person. It involves the entirety of one's being. It is not enough to say that I feel for a person, therefore I love them. It includes feelings, but a whole person who is loving leverages all that they have, their mind, their will, their emotions. We get this, this whole person devotion from the first commandment, the greatest commandment. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to show you the whole person nature of love. The Pharisees come to Jesus in Matthew 22. They come to Him, and if they're trying to catch Jesus, which is a common theme of their life, they fail over and over and over again, but they keep trying. In Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34, we have this exchange. It says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This exchange is recorded not only in Matthew, but in other Gospels as well. And this response, which has been consistent down through Scripture, Jesus takes this command all the way back from Deuteronomy, that this is the greatest desire of God for those who would interact with Him, that they would love Him. And then note how He defines love as a whole person thing, heart, soul, mind, Strength, if you borrow from Deuteronomy and other Gospels. To love properly includes a devotion that grasps all of who you are. It is whole person. Second word here that describes this, though, is devotion. It is a kind of commitment. It is spiritual level commitment to another I think we find this in the fact that so often when describing love throughout Scripture, Jesus compares our devotion to Him with our devotions to others. He says, you cannot love me and money at the same time. You cannot love God and money. You will either love one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. Love is an expression of devotion or a measure, according to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, if you desire to love me, you have to hate your mom and your dad and your brothers and sisters and all that you have. He means this by comparison. Love is a measure of devotion. It's one of the reasons that love is so powerful. Because when a person has with their whole being attached themselves outwardly, that is an unbelievably difficult thing to shake. And all the while in life, what we are doing is we are putting out tentacles of love and attaching ourselves either more and more or pulling back more and more from things that we either ought to or, or ought not to love. 
And so love defined means a whole person devotion. The question is a devotion to what? And it seems as though this idea that righteousness constantly shoves its way in, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth, that to properly love, rightly ordered love, is to love and consistently be devoted with your whole person to the highest good, the best thing possible. The right, the eternal, the lasting. To love means that you have had your eyes opened to that which is best for the other. And it is a whole person devotion for the highest good. But then more than that, proper love according to Scripture, the way that it's defined is to keep the highest good in mind for the right priority of beings in the universe. And so ultimately, all that is done and all that we have and everything we devote needs first and foremost to be committed to the highest good for God. That's what it means to love Him. That our first instinct and our desire from the depth of our being is that our time and our emotions and our efforts would ultimately be directed so that God is always put in first place so that we do not detract from Him, that we do not shame His name or His work in the world. Our first job in being loving people is to be whole person devoted to the highest good for God. This is why we must insist on truth. We cannot disagree with God about the facts of a matter and be loving Him in His highest good. We cannot be robbing His glory in the way that we live our lives and be saying that we're devoted to His highest good. To be awakened to the reality of God and to the fact that this world and this place, ourselves and others around us, that the best and the most lasting good that can be done in the world is to be, to be devoted to God having first place means that you have begun to love properly. You've become alive to the realities, the eternal realities of the world. There is no alternate universe where God receives less love and is less honored and less in control and everyone else is better off. It is why the first thing to do if you desire to love others truly is to remember and to make sure that you are loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You want to love your spouse the best that you can, then put God first. Because there's no world, no universe where your spouse is loved better when God is second. God has to be in his proper place or else everyone else falters. That's just the way that this works. If you want to love your employer, if you want to love your neighbor, if you want to love self, the first thing you need to do is to be whole person devoted to the highest good for God in your soul. It is why every attempt at love in the world or every definition at love in the world that discounts and does not begin with God is ultimately false love, ultimately self-serving in some way. So, love is whole person devotion to the highest good, first for God, but then not just for God. Jesus includes and says, this is the great and first commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is constantly, endlessly looking out. So, when God is installed in first place and you love him with a whole person devotion, the next question becomes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, not self 
first. Love is the kind of thing in a person that looks out and says, what can I do to serve? What can I offer to build up? How can I restore? How can I make a path straight? How can I love others? That is what the Spirit of love in us, if the Spirit of God is moving in you, then here's a couple of tests or a couple of thoughts. You should be, first of all, more awake to God, but second of all, you should be increasingly sensitive and alert to the needs and desires of people around you. You no longer fruit of the Spirit-bearing person, you no longer are able to just skate past or through life with blinders on. Self-interest becomes more and more difficult to the Spirit-wrought loving person. Brian Regan is one of our favorite comedians. Our whole family listens to him often, and one of his best rants concerns people who live in what he calls you world. It's all about you. He describes someone getting on an airplane and holding up the entire flight because they are trying to put their luggage in the overhead compartment. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that you live in you world. And he always does this with his hands to describe someone who just doesn't see anyone else. It's all about me. Life's all about me. In our family, it's become a common thing whenever we see someone doing something that is so obviously self-centered and self-interested taking all of the food, taking the best spot for a movie or something. It's one of the most common things, a little signal in our family to recognize, hey, you maybe need to be a little more loving right now. We just do this. Hey, hey. And everyone knows, oh, wait, there should be something inside of me that is becoming more alert and more awake to the needs of the neighbors, the people that God has surrounded me with. One of the first signs that you are being loved well is that the people around you, the person around you seems more interested and more attentive to your needs than to their own. And that kind of thing is inspiring and it creates a cycle of gratitude and a cycle of love that multiplies in the world rather than ending itself. There is no reciprocal emotion or exchange possible when focused on self. I suppose you could be self-congratulatory. I'm so concerned about my needs. I've met my needs. Thank you, self. But something happens in a world of love when we have been awakened first to God and His priorities and His best, but then second, we begin to find a life like this very, very difficult. We have discovered the other. And we start to wonder, what is it about me? What is it about my thoughts, my mind, my time, my gifts that could serve others and put them in a better position? We begin to ask questions about others that are better, not how can they be useful to me, but what do they need most? What is their highest good? And how might I leverage myself to serve them? The definition of love is to be a whole person devoted to the highest good, first to God, then to others, And I want to say something here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right before we move on to the last part of the definition, to self. And that is this, that the first loophole, because humans are always looking for loopholes, here's the thing, sin as a self-focus causes us to constantly look for excuses to not want to live like this. So, sneaky Pharisees, who come up to him, they say, well, if we can't catch him in a definition of the greatest commandment, 
want you to recall that stories like the Good Samaritan exist in the Bible. One of the first loopholes, you can just see it with kids. One time I was selling tickets at a fair, and we had this deal. It was for kids to play little games and stuff, right? But these little tickets that they got, they could also buy hot dogs and Cokes and things like that. And we wanted people essentially to buy this pack. If you bought, if you bought $1, $1 would give you two tickets, but if you gave if you get $5, you got 15 tickets or something. You know how these work, right? You get the bonus tickets. And the moment that I was selling this, there was one enterprising young man who came up, and I could just tell from the moment that he saw the thing, he bought, he bought the package for $5, and he got the 15 tickets, and then I could just see the wheels turning, and he was trying to find the loopholes and the ways out and the ways to leverage this thing. And he counted out. Here's what he did. He counted out 10 of the tickets. You see, with five tickets, you could go get a hot dog and get a drink, and you could play a game. So he counted out 10 of the tickets, put five in his pocket, and he came back to me. And he said, well, can I sell these back to the store? Because I have 10 tickets here, and it says here that it's two tickets for $1. So can I give you 10 tickets and get $5? And I had the most wonderful business conversation with this young man. There was something about his world and about his brain that worked immediately to find loopholes in the system, to say to himself, well, how can I leverage this for me? And if it would have worked, it was a brilliant scheme. He would have just kept recycling five new tickets every single time. And the Pharisees, you see, they decided that they wanted to find a loophole. So here's what they asked. This is what they asked. This is what they said. Okay, this love sounds steep. You mean a whole person devotion to the highest good for God and neighbors? Okay, let me ask you this. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And I want you to recall that it's in response to that question that Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He tells them a story to, sh- to show them and to tell them that the neighbor is those who are downtrodden. Yes, even those people. You mean a neighbor is people who are difficult? Yes, even those people. You mean a neighbor is people who are costly? Yes, especially those people. You mean a neighbor is someone who I don't like? Yes, even people you don't like. You mean a neighbor is someone who works against me and for my harm? Yes, even your enemies. That's who we love. You work for their highest good, even those who work against you. This is the true power of love in the world. So often, Jesus brings this back over and over and over again. He tells people, here's the thing, when the Spirit of God comes, and when you're awakened to God and to others, you're going to be moved to love, but I know what you're going to want to say. You're going to say, okay, do I have to love? And you're going to look around and you're going to find the easiest path. You're going to find the loophole. You're going to say, how can I make this work for me? And so Jesus, as often as he mentions the word love, mentions things like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, listen, you have to love the difficult people. Everyone loves those who love them back. What good is that for you? Here's an exercise of love. I found it to be the most challenging question. Who or what is the most difficult thing for me to love and how can I work for their good this week? I remember I asked myself this question. I heard someone teaching through this passage one time and I asked myself this question and there was a guy that I just could not stand. The guy that I just could not stand. I felt like he was arrogant, he was immature, constantly making little jabs and barbs that I felt like were totally inappropriate. You know, like, guys are constantly jabbing each other. If you grew up with siblings or cousins or something, you know. That's just kind of how it works. 
or if you played a sport, but there's always the one guy who found that as the loophole, and he's like, oh, cool, so it's great to make fun of each other and, and joke, and you can just tell it's always mean-spirited. I felt like it was that person. And I'm listening to somebody teach through this, and I think to myself, no, what would actual love look like for me this week? And I found myself writing down his name. And there were days where I am trying to find the least painful way to actually love this person. I think I told this story before, but God found a way to help me out with this because this person needed to drive four hours to go pick up something for their family and did not have a vehicle, and I happened to have a car. And I overheard two days after praying about how could I love this person that I'm so annoyed by? How could this work? I overheard them asking everyone around them, does anyone have a car or some way that I could get to where I need to go? And I liked my car, and I had places I wanted to go. I was supposed to go golfing that very day. And so, with great pain, I walked toward him with keys and irritated, if I'm honest, irritated, I shouted, here, how can I help you take my car? You see, here's the thing. The Spirit of God is powerful enough. The Spirit of of God is committed enough and devoted enough to your growth in love that you can love and need to grow in love to people exactly like that we need to make it more practical, I would say this. Do you know that God has called you? In fact, it ought to be Christians who are growing more and more in the kind of love that crosses the barriers that the rest of the world say are impossible. That when you discover differences in other people, political or socioeconomic or or social or otherwise, that for the Christian, when you discover differences in others, this does not discourage your movement toward them, but gives you a new avenue and a path to work to their highest good. There is nothing about a Christian ethic, nothing about Christian faith that says, here's the goal of the Christian life. Let's discount and disengage from everyone who is different and difficult. That is the spirit of hell. That is the spirit of the world, not the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ says, love your neighbor as self. Well, yeah, but who's, who's my neighbor? It's not those people, right? It's not, it's not the person who wrote that book, right? not the person at that protest, right? And Jesus would say directly to this instinct, no, that is exactly when your whole person devotion to the highest good for God first and then to neighbor will be tested. Love is a non-negotiable growing aspect of the Spirit of Christ. Now, I know you want the caveat, so I'll give you just a few. No, it doesn't mean that you begin to agree with everything that you see in the world. No, it does not mean that you make excuses for things that you think are unexcusable. Of course, all of those things are there. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. We just found the description. But it does not mean disengage. So love is a definition. Whole person devotion. The highest good. First for God, then second for neighbor, and then finally for self. And it turns out that the greatest thing you can do for yourself is to kill yourself. (laughs) That sounded really terrible. But it's funny, isn't Galatians, isn't the, the idea of Galatians 5 that you put to death the deeds of the flesh? There's an old man in all of us, and the highest good and the best that can happen, if you are living your own life based on your own merits and your own works, if you are living your own life insisting on your own way and not allowing God to speak into it, if you have determined to live life in your own pattern for your own interests, for your own pleasures, you are 
in danger. It is not loving to oneself to insist on your own way or your own philosophies or your own righteousness. Scripture insists again and again and again and again that the thing you can do to love oneself, to choose the highest good eternally for yourself, is to kill the old man, to lay yourself down, to find oneself crucified on the Christ, on the cross with the living Christ, so that you might live. You see, the fruit of the Spirit in us, one of the first works of miracle that it does, it shows us the ways that we have been selfish, the ways that we have not been loving. We have been slowly, by our own commitment and own devotion to desires and things that lead to destruction, we have been hating ourselves. But to offer oneself up to Jesus, to give up control, to receive the good gifts of the Spirit is a step toward love. To receive from God all that He has and then to walk in His commands is the greatest act of self-love. And the fruit of the Spirit will allow you to do this. Christians oftentimes have difficulty receiving good things from God. They have a difficulty time receiving His forgiveness, receiving His grace, receiving the promises that He's given. But the Spirit of God in you will encourage you to say, receive these good gifts. I am for you and I am with you. And that would, that's what it means ultimately, not to choose your own path or to wallow in your own way, but to offer oneself up and therefore to love. And finally, I said that we would talk about what love looks like demonstrated. We described it, we defined it, and then demonstrated. And I would say that one thing before we talk about demonstration is to remember that there is an, a completely connected link between being and doing. So when I say demonstration, I don't want us to immediately only think about the stuff that we do. In fact, I would remind you that first and foremost, love is an essence of a particular kind of being. That's what it means when Scripture says in 1 John that God is love. It indicates that one of the Spirit's goals in you is not necessarily any one act of love, though I hope the Spirit of God speaks to you in moments when you can love. If somebody is wandering around that you have prayed about, said, oh, I need a ride somewhere, and you have the means to help them, sometimes the Spirit of God brings that into clarity. But more than that, I think what the Spirit of God is interested in in you is to, for you to have as a being to be marked by a particular practice of others focused. To have a particular attitude that says, all that I have and everything that I have been given, my time, my money, my skills, my emotions, my words, are to be leveraged on a moment's notice for those in need around me. To demonstrate love means that we consistently and persistently be a kind of person in the world, a kind of person that is approachable and humble and others-focused. Anywhere and whenever we demonstrate this kind of love, it is evidence the Spirit of God is making us more like we were designed to be, more imago Dei, more in God's image who is love. And then, in addition to that demonstration of a person, I think you can say of someone they are a loving person, meaning by disposition, but more than that, and we should say this out loud, love is ultimately demonstrated through the ways that we live. Love will find a way out into the world. 
God so loved the world, we just sang it, that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love for the world was demonstrated in a particular kind of action. He so loved the world, not only in such great degree, but by this particular demonstration of initiating action. Love is an active force in the world. Love moves towards the other. It's why so often phrases like speaking the truth in love are entered into the Scripture for us to read, because love ultimately will be expressed and demonstrated out into the world. Love will be spoken. Love will be acted. Love will be put into practice. To say that you love over and over and over again, but for there to be no evidence in your real life, betrays the love that you claim. So ultimately, love is spirit-wrought obedience to the commands of God. It's ultimately to put into practice the things that God has called us to be and to do. Love is demonstrated not only in our being, a disposition toward love, but in our acting. I think we need to be humble enough to have an accounting, an audit of our life. Is there a demonstration in action, in word, in deed, of the kind of love that we claim? If we have the fruit of the Spirit, where is this showing up? Does it ever hit your calendar? Does it ever hit your checkbook? For those of you under the age of 30, checks were physical pieces of paper that you could write on for exchange of goods. Does it ever hit your Venmo? Where does love show up in your life? Does it ever look like an extra plate at the table? Does it ever look like a drive across town at a difficult hour? Does it ever look like difficult words exchanged? Does it ever look like a commitment to discipline? Does it ever, does it ever, does it ever? That's the question. What does it look like when it's demonstrated in the world? This may not happen all at once, But all of us together ought to be interested in this kind of life. We are the spirit, we are the community of the spirit of the living God. And so therefore, it matters to us if this is being demonstrated in our midst. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We just taught through all 1 Timothy. And I was just reminded again, coming to love, Paul's whole goal in telling Timothy, he tells him at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of all of this is love. Ultimately, it matters to us personally if we're growing in love, but it should matter just as much because we want one another's highest good if all of us are growing in love. Does it matter to you if we have all the coolest stuff and if we have a reputation for a prophetic ministry or we have healing ministries, or if we have, would it matter to you if our church was cool in every single way, it's just that everyone said, well, they're kind of unloving. Would that matter to you? Because it matters to God. 
You can't opt out of this scenario. Does it matter that all of us collectively are growing in love? This was Paul's encouragement to the church in Ephesus. He writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, now note, this is what a church ought to be. When it's working properly, when we're all growing up into Christ, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Because love is ultimately others-focused, love is ultimately a community project. If you have a hard time growing in love, let me invite you to start with the people that God has put in close proximity with you. Some of the most difficult Christians in this very building, in this very room right now, everyone is wondering if I'm talking about them. There's going to be people in the body of Christ that you think to yourself, I don't understand them, I don't get them, I don't know what to do with them. Perhaps this is an opportunity, perhaps this is a God-ordained moment for us to say as a community project, let's grow in love. Let's put into practice the claims that we've made, the bold, glorious claims that we've made. Is the Spirit of God at work in you? If so, you will be growing in love. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us I don't want to be the kind of church who is interested in everything but being loving. I thank you, God, for the full definitions and the descriptions and demonstrations of love that you've given in the world. Help us to be fully orbed in our understanding of these things. And God, I ask that we would believe that we believe the Bible, that it's by our love for one another that the world will know that you've come. It's by our love for one another that we prove that we're your disciples. It's by our love for one another that we show that we have the Spirit of God. So, Holy Spirit, whatever's been missed, whatever has been lost, would you speak now? Bring to our mind areas to grow and make us committed in our whole person to God and others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.